Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine. Suzanne and me. Today we're going to start with the topic of motivation and we've been thinking about motivation because well in the UK and and certainly in other parts of the world it's exam time as we're doing this conversation and Suzanne's daughter you were saying Suzanne is doing a set of exams and you've been reflecting on what motivates her and her schoolmates so maybe you'd like to kick us off. Yeah, it's quite interesting because she's quite similar to me in how she's motivated. She's 18. So these are the exams that she takes before she goes to, to college, to university. So they're, they're a big deal. And um, but she's very motivated and has been revising for a really long time. We worked out yesterday she's been revising for over 100 days, which is, is a really long time. But she has that from herself. So there's nobody telling her to do that. The school, I think, offers guidance and suggestions she's created this revision plan for herself and when I was thinking about it it's very similar to me and how I was at that age and how I am now actually that it's it's kind of inside this motivation of wanting to do a good job which I just think is inside me and definitely I see it in her but of course inevitably amongst people she knows there are people who seem to be very different and do things a bit last minute and and they seem to be fine with that so I think it's really interesting there's people in my own family who don't like that kind of preparedness they prefer to do things last minute because they feel less stressed that way whereas the most stressful thing for me is having to do something like that with no preparation other things I'm happy to do without preparation but anything where I need to study I would want to be really prepared so I wonder what's motivating her to study though you know is it the end result is it what she wants to do after school what is Mm. getting her motivated I think she definitely has a really clear picture of where she wants to go. And she has done for quite a long time. She knows which university she wants to go to. She knows the course she wants to go to. She knows the grades she has to get and that it's pretty difficult to get in. So she has that vision guiding light, I suppose, which I think is leading her there. She, you know, she knows that she has to 
do well to, to, to get to where she wants to go. And and I but I also think it's a bit more than that. And I'm, I'm reflecting on my own experience as well here that you have that in mind. But then there's also that certainly for me, that feeling of I don't want to let myself down. And I wouldn't want to speak for her as to whether that's her motivation, too. But that's certainly mine that I, I never wanted to do something and walk away from it and think, oh, I could have done more. I could have been more prepared. I could have worked harder at that. That's for me is what's always got me to do things. And if somebody else had said the same to you, we want you to do this, we want you, would that make a difference? No, so, it would do the opposite. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't remember that we've had this conversation before, but I, I don't actually really like people telling me what to do. And it's actually an anti-motivator. So nagging, people putting pressure on, people trying to control what I'm doing is like the anti-motivator and will almost make me do the opposite. Fascinating. And how about you, David? Do you have some anti-motivators <laughs> or any motivators? Well, it's so funny. Yeah, I, I don't remember, Suzanne, if you and I talked about this or the three of us did. We're talking about um, Gretchen Rubin's four types related to forming good habits. And both Suzanne and I relate to the rebel where we don't want others telling us what to do. And I don't know how much, Suzanne, you can relate to this. And I'm curious, Susan, where one of the challenges that I can relate to with being the rebel is we don't even like ourselves telling us what to do, <laughs> which makes life kind of challenging. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have that. I'm, I'm all right at telling myself what to do. And Well, but then I do self-sabotage. So maybe you're right. I think I definitely self-sabotage. It depends what it is, I think. So what uh, motivates you then, David? What do you get out of bed for every morning? Yeah. So, so a couple thoughts about that. So one is I've always been mission driven and so if i feel like i'm being helpful to people whether it's you know coaching or writing something or getting ready for a seminar that's what motivates me that being said and i think this speaks to some of the stuff that we've talked about in the past about todd rose's dark horse where he talks about micro motives like tuning into the little component parts of things that mo motivate you and and how do they because one of the things that i found really lacking in my life when i was just doing speaking at events and training is the one-on-one -on -one service of helping people and when it's just one to many it like i i don't feel the real visceral experience of um, making a difference or helping somebody because it's like I hope it made a difference do you know what I'm saying and that um, motivated me to start doing career coaching I think another interesting aspect of like micro motives that just hit me the other day and I'm thinking how can I leverage this more was I had a, a networking Zoom meeting with somebody uh, in the career coaching field, and she asked me about some really basic thing 
we need to do as independent consultants to grow our business, it was doing an easing. Okay, I'll, I'll confess, it was doing an easing. And I, in my coaching practice, I hadn't set up an easing or collected emails. And I know that's just like 101, but I hate doing that stuff. And so I, I, I hadn't done it in a year. And it's one of those you're supposed to, but you don't dilemmas. But because she's chic after I fessed up and said, I haven't done it. She said, well, I haven't either. And so I immediately said, hey, do you want to be accountability buddies that will agree to do it? And she's like, okay. And like, how about two weeks from now? And she said, I, I can't commit to that, but I can at least commit to researching which platform. And this thing that I had procrastinated on for a year, because I felt like if I do it, it'll inspire her to do it. I did it in a week. And I'm like, duh, why did I do this a year ago? But I was able to stumble upon the lever that worked. It's inspiring others, role modeling what I'm encouraging them to do. So I'm working on like, how do I use more of that to do all those things I know I need to do and I'm not doing? I'm sure you could just put out a call to action somewhere saying, I'm looking for people who need help with. Yeah, right. <laughs> that force you. Because <laughs> it's oh. like a forcing function, isn't it? I mean, that's what it became, a forcing function for you to get beyond your doubts, procrastination, whatever it is. I think about motivation a lot because some things just come so easily. I think in a way we have to be motivated to do everything. Anything we do requires motivation, you know, getting up out of bed, brushing your teeth, eating, maybe an easier one. But some things really require a large degree of motivation. And I go to CrossFit, which is like high intensity interval training, strength, endurance, that kind of stuff. And I go at 6.15 a.m. is the class and I only go twice a week. So it's not huge. But I still have to motivate myself to get out of bed at 5.45 a.m. to get there on time and all of that. And I often wonder what drives that. There's something in me that knows it's good for me or the enjoyment I get out of it, but it's all self-directed. And I wonder if somebody told me to do it, would I? Probably not. And, and that's a really interesting thing. It's not driven by health it's driven by enjoyment or interest and I think that's a big part of motivation is if you're interested you'll commit I can only make that commitment to something if it interests me and there's a lot of stuff I have to do that doesn't so it falls down the list and I wonder if we I think you probably have a few questions there, David, as you look like. So maybe ask a couple of questions, because I was going to say, and then let's take this into the workplace and what motivates people at work. I was going to ask you before you said it about, because I know CrossFit is fun compared to just slogging away in the gym. So you you enjoy the process of it? Yeah, and the variety. No two classes are ever the same. So every time you go, there's different routines. There's usually different people. There's an energy to it that I just find, yeah, 
really, really fun. Half the time I can't do the stuff that you're meant to be able to do, but that doesn't demotivate me at all, which is really interesting. Like this morning we were doing weightlifting and I kept failing every time I tried to add weight. It just didn't work, but it doesn't seem to bother me. I just go down in weights and do more. It's hard to know what it is, but I think it's just interest. That is interesting. Yeah. So the variety, the novelty. So you mentioned the energy. How much of it is the tribe and the like-minded people and the fun atmosphere? Is that You've seen the class this morning, you'd say none of it. (laughs) No, I... I think there's something about turning up there and testing yourself. And maybe that's it as well. I like testing myself and pushing myself a little bit to see what I can do in a safe environment. So it's a very safe environment where you're really encouraged. Even as a woman, nobody takes any notice that you're not as strong as the guys. I think it's the environment as well is very conducive to feeling safe at trying and failing and there's great encouragement as well yeah and there's no shame on scaling as they call it so if you can't do the recommended no one cares because you're there for yourself yeah and it just works quite well I find that really interesting and it reminds me I've been reading Atomic Habits have you have you read that book and it was reminding me about creating that habit and when you first start doing something new you make it easy for yourself so I don't know whether you put your kit out the night before put your trainers out you know all that sort of stuff so that when you get up you have no excuse not to do it and then I imagine over time it just becomes you enjoy it and you get a lot out of it and then it stops being oh I, I have to motivate myself to do it but maybe at the beginning it did feel a bit like that I can imagine I would feel like that if it were me. I'd be a bit nervous and of doing something new. But then when you get into the habit and you create the habits around the habit, it makes it easier to be motivated. That's so true. And one of the things I've found as well is setting myself a challenge. Mm. So a four week streak. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I got out for at least 30 minutes walk every day and I was letting it fall down my list of priorities. So I set myself a challenge and now I pretty much do it without even thinking about it. The habits are really important, Suzanne. I think you're absolutely right that we, we, if you want to do something, you have to start small. There's a TED talk actually about it exercising and I it's not really about exercising but it's about what we're talking about I think the motivation and everything and the woman basically says you know doing it for one minute is better than not doing it at all so if you just do it for one minute every day eventually you're probably going to do it for two and three and so on but the day you skip and that's what I find when I let a habit drop it's so hard to pick it up again I kind of have to start all over with the streak to motivate myself but there was something finding the lever that worked that's it and maybe we all have a lever that works for us well your scenario i think is so fascinating for multiple levers multiple elements of why you enjoy it and it would be fascinating to explore at the risk of going back to dark horse, like the micro motives, how those things that work for you 
you can apply in other situations. So like the variety, the testing yourself, the you're not competing against somebody else. You're exploring on your own. No shame. It's all those different things. Yeah. And I would say the podcast, I don't know how you feel about that, Suzanne. And I know, David, you're starting one as well. But that is something that I motivate myself to do. Yeah, sure. I tell people there's an episode going out every week, but I don't think anyone's going to be upset if there isn't. <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm going to have people knocking down the door going, hey, where's the latest episode? <laughs> But yet I love doing it. I'm driven to do all of it. Like I do the whole thing myself. Parts of it I don't really like, but I like the rest of it enough to pull myself over and look for guests and do all of that. And it's variety as well. Again, David, for me, I think the different people you get to talk about the different topics. Is that something you would find too, Suzanne? Or Definitely. I mean, I found with mine that I, I have periods when I fall in and out of love with doing it. Definitely. Um, but I think for me, variety is a big motivator. And and I, I, I don't have a very good attention span. So I think anything where I've been doing what feels like the same thing for a long period of time, I start to get bored. And I did have a period probably towards the beginning of this year when I did start to get a bit like I don't know whether I want to be doing it anymore. And and I had a chat with Pete, who produces my podcast for me, and he said, well, don't, you know, if you don't want to, but just see what happens. I, and I think then the pressure was taken off. And then I started to have ideas about who I might want to speak to. And then I got some really interesting guests who I wanted to talk to. So I think it's interesting, but there's bits of it that I don't do, hence why I have a producer, because that's just not my thing. And And if I knew I had to edit and produce an episode, I wouldn't do it because it's just... I, I couldn't do it and I'd be terrible at it also. So I think I, I know enough about what I like doing and what motivates me to know that that isn't the thing for me. The bit I like is finding people, doing the research and then talking to them. And then the rest of it, I don't want to do. <laughs> but luckily, it's great that you know that too, I think, because a lot of us end up doing stuff we don't want to do, which is a big demotivator. Mm. And what about you, David? <laughs> oh man yeah that's an area that i am wrestling with right now because my podcast which was supposed to launch late winter early spring i've stalled out on the technical side of it like and when i say technical i actually love editing audio and i'm okay with aud vid aud editing video it's just a few stupid things that you both know about that I'm wrestling about just suck it up and pay somebody to do it and, and move on and do what you love versus like, oh, I got to do it myself. So that's a perfect humbling example of uh, like fighting yourself to make yourself do something that you're kicking and screaming internally, not wanting to do. Yeah. And it's so hard to find the motivation then. Yeah, For sure. Yeah, if I had to edit my own podcast, there would probably be one episode. One <laughs> 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 <On> episode. <laughs> yeah, then the dog would be barking, and that would be the only episode because it's just not my thing. I'd probably do it once and then say, 
no, I didn't like that. I'm not doing it again. Actually, it was a real godsend for me before I'd even started to think about doing a podcast seriously is I met Pete and we had a conversation about it and I realised, oh, okay, there's someone who lives near me that can do this stuff and he's really good at it and enjoys it and he can do that part for me. But also I get so much guidance and support from him. So I think it is about having that knowledge of yourself and what actually is going to make you want to do something. But also I think giving yourself permission sometimes not to do something because the conversation I had with him about, well, just stop. I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me that that might be an option. (laughs) So funny, isn't it? (laughs) All right. Okay. Maybe I could. And then I thought, actually, I don't want to, but I think it is that, having the permission to stop doing something that's okay you know it's not a failure it's just you moved on I'm sure that time will come I can't imagine me doing my podcast till the end of time you know at some point I'll I'll do something else and that's okay absolutely and like what we've been talking about you know we're three people right (laughs) we're already established how complex we all are (laughs) the things we can and cannot do or will or won't do And so if you move into an organization and what motivates people, let's say en masse, for want of a better term, because we all want everyone working towards the same goal, then how does it work to motivate people? And can we ever actually motivate anyone? Oh, that's a good question. See, I think from the work that I do around organisation change, this is where a lot of managers and leaders get it wrong because they don't try and understand the differences between people within their team. And so they try and apply the same techniques and approach to everybody. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So I think there's that piece, which is about really trying to understand people within your team who you have, I'm not going to say control over because that's not right, but you have access to trying to understand where they're at. But equally, I think you can't motivate everybody all of the time. And I think you have to be okay with that. And again, in in the world I work in, this idea of people resisting change, I think it will happen and it will happen to different people at different times. And and you just have to accept that that's the case and you you have to work with it. But you have to accept that you're not going to take everybody with you, that they're not all going to be delighted by this thing that's happening. And that's okay. You do as much as you can. But at the end of the day, people's motivation is such a personal thing and everyone's so different. There's only so much that you can do. And I think when I'm working with people, I often say you try and focus on the 80%. And, you know, everyone else will either come along with you or they won't. If they're not going to come along with you, they probably never will. And so you just have to be accepting of that. Mm. What about you, David? What would you say? Yeah, I'm, I actually, I would love to hear more from both of you around the understand where they're coming from and the sort of the good old seek first to understand because it's so different than let's champion this change and use force of will. Any stories or more thoughts about having like more understanding and compassion for the 
the natural resistance to change. I've probably talked about it before, but my colleague Alan Arnett always uses the analogy of a shiny pin in the approach that most organisations use with change. So the leaders act as the salesman of the shiny pen and the change is the shiny pen. Look at my shiny pen. Don't you all want the shiny pen? That's the sort of the, the approach that lots of leaders take. And actually, there's a step before that that they haven't done, which is... Do, do they actually need a shiny pen <laughs> or have you have you bothered to try and find out <laughs> whether they're even interested in your shiny pen and it's not just during change and it's just normal during business as usual but people can make with their teams and their colleagues just to try and understand them on a more personal level so all the time in work you see that sort of work face I, I think that's changing post-covid because we've seen a lot more of people's personal life whilst they've been working from home but really just talk to people and and understand who they are and where they're coming from and then you have an opportunity to appeal to that side of them in the in the work that you're doing or or getting them engaged and involved in in what it is and you said stories there David but I think that's the key to it is actually listening to people's stories and listening to their experiences and asking them has anyone ever asked you aside from this conversation David, what motivates you? I mean, has that a conversation that's ever happened at work? It's never happened for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's really interesting, Suzanne, because one of my colleagues, Helen and I, we do some leadership development training together and we run five days for a cohort that are usually within the one organization. And we do it over a period of three months. On the third day, we really focus in on motivation. And actually, I love Dan Pink's model from Drive, that people are motivated by autonomy, mastery and purpose. I think it's such an easy way to think about it. And even as you were speaking earlier about your daughter, she's self-directed. Like, there's absolutely no doubt about that. The mastery is her really wanting to get better so she can get into the course that she wants, which is her purpose, because it was a vision and a guiding light. And so you can fit that model to people. And this is what we say to the guys that we're training, because a lot of the people we tend to work with for some reason are salespeople. And they think often that their team are motivated by money that that's what motivates them, you know, to go for the incentives and the bonuses and all of that. But actually, we say to them, that's driven by something else. So what is it they want the money for? Is it for family holidays? Is it for education funds or whatever? Because what's that about? It's about keeping the family together. And actually, once you start digging in, you really begin to understand what it is that motivates people, that gives them that their own purpose and not just the organizational purpose. And there's a thing, yeah, pay people more, great. But I don't know. I mean, I was lucky enough to earn very decent money in a couple of jobs I did, but it didn't motivate me more. And it was easier to walk away from because I wasn't motivated by the money. And I think for me, it's pay people enough. So money is not an issue. And then you work with people to see what drives them. In Nine Lies About Work, that book, they talk about a study in some hospital in the US where I think it was with doctors that if they were able to do 20% of their week on something that they really enjoyed doing, 
that that carried them over for the rest of the time. And I think others have shown that in other places as well, that actually, if even for 20% of your working day or working week, you get to have autonomy, mastery, purpose, that will give you enough motivation to continue. So I, they're the kind of things I think about, David, if that answers your question. Yeah, it, and it also two quick things based on what you said. So when you talked about getting money off the table, I think one of the things I've seen so often is uh, managers, leaders don't understand the difference between hygiene factors, which is that, and what truly motivates people. Like one of the things I'll say to, to a group, I'll say, so here's an example of a hygiene factor. If this seminar room was 90 degrees, it would definitely... Uh, diminish your enjoyment of the seminar. But if we get it down to, let's say, 70, you're not going to tell your friends, oh, I went to this great seminar today. It was 70 degrees. <laughs> you know? So hygiene versus motivation. The other thing, and it's funny because I asked you, so tell me more about about how do you understand people, et cetera. And then as you're sharing, I'm thinking, man, it, it really makes me think going back to curiosity is getting curious versus judgy. It, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with not don't doing what we need to do is if I'm working with somebody and they don't do their agreed upon quote homework, and I'm telling myself a story like, oh, they're not motivated, they're lazy, they don't take it seriously. And instead of coming from that judgy point of view, asking like, so what happened? And it turns out they didn't understand what the assignment was or whatever. Get curious, not furious. Get curious instead of judging. So I haven't heard that one before. Get curious, not. Uh... Yeah. Isn't that a great saying? I'll give a shout out to where I first heard a, a guy named Mel Silberman. And he said, people with high emotional intelligence, when they deal with difficult people, they get curious, not furious. I'm like, man, I need more of that. <laughs> so yeah. I think if we have a team, we tend to just think they're all going to be the same. Even if, you know, let's say I worked in finance and you just kind of think, well, they're all going to be motivated by the same things, but we're just not, even within the same family, we're not motivated by all of the same things all of the time. And I think even deeper than that, we don't necessarily know what motivates us. No, I think you're right. We almost know what we don't like, what demotivates more than we know what motivates. It's easy to think of situations where we've not felt motivated um, at work, but it's harder to think about a time, oh, when did I feel really motivated? Because I don't think you notice it in the moment, do you? That's the issue. Because I suppose you're kind of in flow as well. And are all of these terms the same thing then that's the other thing as we're talking I'm thinking about engagement and what we say about engaging people at work is that the same as motivating is that the same as having people in flow how do we distinguish between them or are they very intermingled that if you get one of the ingredients wrong you'll ruin the cake <laughs> if you get them all right you'll get the icing on the cake Anyone have an idea? 
I've got a couple of thoughts. So one quick little fun fact related to flow state. There was a really interesting white paper by McKinsey and Company on flow states. And some survey they did with executives, they said that they were 500% more productive whenever they were in a flow state. So anything and yeah, anything and everything we can do to hack, like how do you get into a flow state worth the effort? So to me, when we're motivated and engaged, we're probably in a flow state. And I think of engagement is like motivation aligned with the employer's goals. So they want to do a great job to contribute and they're able to do a great job. So that's sort of the combination. And back to the themes of today that each person, I like to think of it as each person has an engagement recipe, like different ingredients that need to be there. So back to, I think Suzanne, you're talking about or actually both of you, knowing the individual team members and what what motivates them so they are in that state of flow and high performance. I think you're right. And I, th- and I think it is they are interrelated. So I wonder, is it possible to be in a flow state if you're doing something that you don't find motivating? I suspect not. And if someone is demotivated, they're not likely to be engaged with something. I read a paper once about enchantment, organizational enchantment, which I really like as a as a phrase instead of engagement. So it's like, you know, you can't you can't motivate somebody who isn't engaged. You can't engage someone who isn't motivated. They're so interconnected. But I guess for a person to feel engaged in the organization, they need to have all the things that you were talking about earlier, Susan, in terms of autonomy and purpose. And which is why during a period of change or transformation, I think people don't feel that and then they don't feel engaged because they lose that certainty, that that autonomy. Um, it's, it's David Rock, isn't it, who's got his scarf model, which I absolutely love, which is, you know, you have to have those factors aligned and people need to have answers to their questions about the scarf factors otherwise they feel uncertain and then their brain sort of trips into like a fight or flight reaction and they can't engage so it's trying to line everything up I think but I do think you can use the almost like flow is an output of motivation and engagement I would say that makes sense it does and if we told you well if you told yourself that you were going to edit a podcast episode you would never be in flow doing that. And unless you surprised yourself, of course, and found that actually I love this. Well, that's true. And I can get very engaged in things that are actually, you know, perhaps some people might think would be quite menial. So one of the things I actually really like doing is making a really nice PowerPoint slide. (laughs) I really enjoy doing that. And I can definitely get into flow doing that. I suppose in some ways it probably is intellectually demanding and that you've got to try and group information together and all of that sort of thing but I actually really like it I'm working with a client at the moment and I'm actually quite in demand all the time they keep sending me emails like Suzanne can you make this look pretty and I'm actually going to do a lunch and learn session for them just about how to do it but I get a lot of pleasure out of that but it's not the day job but I actually do quite enjoy it yeah it's interesting and I think what you were saying as well then about change is if change is being announced or whatever, 
the fight or flight, I mean, we we possibly are losing autonomy over how our job is going to be done. We're losing mastery because we're going to have to start all over again with something we didn't know how to do. And we may well buy into the purpose of it because we might be, as you were saying, David, we might be engaged in the workplace and buy into the purpose of the organisation but just those other ones have fallen out of balance and keeping all of those together for everyone. that's probably a big ask. Yeah, I don't think you can. I'm thinking about some of the work I do with leaders and I think you have the kind of the corporate message. But I think the work of the leader is to then tailor that to what they know about their team members. So the corporate communications department cannot create a single message that's going to tick everybody's boxes, but they can share the information that needs to be shared. And I think it's for leaders then to tailor that. It's Noel Titchy, isn't it, what he does about the leadership point of view and the teachable point of view. So you have to, as a leader or a manager, get this information. You shouldn't just parrot it, you know, well, I've been told to tell you this. No, that's not going to work. You have to review it, understand it, then think about who am I communicating this to and how can I add things to it that's going to make it of interest to them. Yeah, and you have to have bought into it as well. And that can even be a step that's missed, that as it's being passed down, that whoever is responsible somewhere along the line, that message goes wrong and then I don't buy into it. So anyone I tell and that will ripple on as well. Um, and you mentioned resistance and I, I think a lot about resistance when it comes back like back to CrossFit now right <laughs> because you do resistance training okay and if you resist something it just makes it harder so you're making it harder for yourself as well there's a tension and when you relax the resistance tends to go So there's a bit about helping people relax into the story of change. And that's to the what you said about anxiety as well, I think. How do we we don't think like that, I think, because we get stressed then when when change isn't happening as quickly as it's supposed to be and everybody's resisting. We start to resist that story, which creates even more tension. So how can we relax? into change or can we had some thoughts around that yeah i'm gonna go back to david rock and scarf etc so a couple of things uh, one goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of uh really trying to understand each person and where they're coming from etc is you think about when somebody is proposing something to us that we feel strongly opposite or just we're not into it, we're way less likely to listen and take in what they're saying if we don't get to share our resistance, our concern. So again, it speaks to the seek first to understand. And one of the, one of the ways I think about it They'll say to people, if somebody's really upset with you and and they need to tell their story, if you don't let them tell their story, it's like a balloon that's going to explode. But if you let them tell their story, it's like if you blow up a balloon, but you don't tie it off and go, and eventually 
it drops because there's no more energy behind. People need to tell their upsetness and then they can relax into hearing what you have to say. I think the other thing to go back to, Susan, when you were talking about Daniel Pink's mastery, meaning, and autonomy, I think another, and then linking it to um, how the brain is structured in the primitive part of the brain is, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but it'll be my best shot at, there's this really cool quote by um, the Russian, I think he was a neurologist or neuroscientist, one of the two, Luria. So the part of the brain, the Luria uh, part is based on him. He said something like, you need to activate the prefrontal lobe through envisioning a future in order to keep the reptilian brain which is always seeing the sky is falling and hyper focuses on the immediate stressors and challenges. You need to activate this, the prefrontal lobe to dampen that down so it's not sweating the small stuff. And I think that's where the, the vision of this is the good stuff that will happen if we move forward and like that why including the good stuff that'll happen with you. So that's the moving forward part, but also back to mastery and autonomy. And then Suzanne, you talked about James Clear, and I love where he uses the garden hose kinked analogy. And he says like how most people talking about developing good habits, it's like crank up the water pressure to force your, you know, get jacked up to force yourself to do those things. How about if we unkink the hose? What are those obstacles? And I, and when I think about most people's natural resistance to change, one of the big ones is employees not feeling like they have the skills to deal with the change, especially if it's a, a new technology rollout. And then back to the theme that both of you have been mentioning with autonomy, that I feel like this is done to me. So I don't have any agency. So it's like, how do we upskill them? And how can we design into it as much positive control as possible so they don't feel like a total lack of autonomy? So th those are some of the things that came up for me. I love and that. I, yeah. And I think it is about giving them that really clear vision, but in a way that is not too corporate and actually is very personal. At the end of the day, as an employee, you want your employer to do well, but you don't actually care that much about what this means and, and everything else. It's what you want is to know how this is going to affect you. What's in it for me? What's my working day going to look like? in this new world and a client of mine did it created a whole load of cartoons when they were introducing a change that had kind of a day in the life of different employees and it was voiced by real employees and they'd interviewed them and talked about how what their work was like now and what it might be like in the future and then they released them and people could watch them it was amazing people loved it and huge levels of engagement and actually it was real people and it wasn't about Mr. CEO, what's going to happen to him? It was about Fred Bloggs, who works in IT. What what's his day going to be like? And I think it's that bit taking it down to that that level of of understanding. You know, that kind of town hall. Let's all meet in a room, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Is just uh, maybe necessary, but it needs to be followed up with other stuff. And I think that's the bit that's missing. And the other thing I was thinking about when you were speaking, from my own experience, is 
my view of resistance has changed over the years. When I first started out as a consultant working in change, I used to get very annoyed by people who were resisting change because it just made my life harder. It was just difficult because I think I was too young and inexperienced to really understand where it was coming from. And I think over time, I've reframed it in my own head as it's not resistance, it's super engagement. So this person is so engaged in what is happening that they are asking questions. They're poking holes in it. They're being difficult because they want to know more. And I think as a leader and as a consultant or anyone working as a change practitioner, you have to ask yourself, well, what is it that they're struggling with? Is it that you just haven't told them enough and they don't understand it and you need to tell them more? Is it that actually there's something wrong with your process, but they've identified it and you haven't? Well, let's engage with it. And, And it goes back to the conversation we had right at the beginning about that curiosity and and being curious about why it's happening rather than just as I used to be oh this is really annoying it's just going to add an extra week to our plan well let's dig down into it and try and figure out where it's coming from because actually maybe this person knows more about it than I do and I can learn something from them I mean there'll always be the odd person who's just awkward that's fine too but you don't know that until you actually spend some time digging into it And sorry, I I thought of something else. I don't want to hog the conversation. But the most recent podcast I recorded was with a a gentleman called Dr. John Lorna, who works in the field of narrative medicine. And he used an analogy, which I know you guys will love, about asking questions and being curious. He said he sees it as weaving a tapestry, not digging a hole. So typically you'd think about, oh, we've got to dig into the detail. No, it's about asking questions that enable us to explore the story in more detail. When you were speaking, David, I really thought about that exploration. And he also said that uh, we have to be curious enough to destabilise ourselves. And I think that's what stops people from being curious because it's like asking a question is a sign of weakness or what if it takes me down a hole that I don't know the answer. And I think it's about creating that instability in ourselves that means we can be curious enough to ask more questions I love that oh, I know very uh, powerful isn't very, it very very powerful his stuff's yeah. amazing he's he's written some amazing books I did a podcast with him it was released I think last week so it's so interesting completely different field but so many parallels to corporate life and yeah the destabilizing ourselves and the other thing I think of there is We've been brought up, I would say, to always look for solutions. You have to find the solution. So what's the solution to shutting this person down? Or how do we, that's the solution, we'll shut them down. And and actually, you know, I think I often quote that Einstein quote of if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes on the problem and understanding it, and then five minutes on the solution. And there's so much about understanding the problem and digging into that. And oftentimes when it comes to change we've gone beyond that we've figured out what's the right thing to do perhaps but we haven't brought people with us and they still don't understand the problem with the old yeah 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 and you have to as well I think balance that with recognizing that there was some good stuff that happened in the past So again, appreciative inquiry is a model that I use a lot in my own work. And part of that is appreciating the best of what is. And I think if you're trying to motivate people, don't tell them that everything they did before was really rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) Never a good strategy. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you have to be able to demonstrate what is being carried forward and why that is the case. And I, and again, I used to cringe when I had my corporate job that some of my colleagues would come in and basically rip apart everything that I'd done before. And you think these people are sitting in the room. You're know, you basically saying everything they've done for 10 years is bad. <laughs> we have to replace it with something else. And then you, you expect them to want to work with us. Why would they do that? So I think it's that balance of not constantly wanting to move forward, but being prepared to look back. And, and take some of that with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you anything to add there, David? Um, I just love the being annoyed with, with the chance. So is that so true? It's like, come on, just get with the program. Jeez. The one thing that also popped up in my mind back to like understanding more of the neurobiology or, or just the biology of resistance to change that one of the things that was interesting, I can't remember who it was with the interview, but they were talking about keep in mind that calorie conservation is one of the most important survival programs because as opposed to our world, for at least for us, that finding calories is not an issue. It's like not consuming too many is more the issue. But in caveman, cavewoman day, finding calories is really critical. So don't waste any. And so sticking with the old ways conserves calories. And also since, as you know, the brain, when we're thinking and problem solving uses lots of calories, sticking with the tried and true saves energy. And so there's this like really primal drive that keeps us from, and the people we're hoping to embrace change keeps that from happening. So I think that's another little data point that can help us from being annoyed and judging the resistance. That's brilliant. And one of the podcast guests that I've had on a couple of times, Steve Haynes, he says people are gloomy, lazy predictors. Because that's what we're like. We look for the negative in things. We're lazy because we're trying to conserve those calories. We really are. And we're constantly predicting what's coming next. And and if you can kind of couch all of that, and he means it in the nicest possible way, of course. But he yeah, he writes a bit about the brain and 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 anxiety and panic and stuff. And I think once and once people anyone understands like well for me once I understand more about how my brain works and my biology and my neurophysiology and whatever all of those terms it just shifts how I approach things and I would love to see more of the world being more exposed to how we actually work And then you work out your own motivators. I don't need somebody to tell me or ask me what motivates me. I'll know because I'll know so much about myself. Yeah, you're so right. And and that should be part of management education, leadership education, because it moves you from being, this person's really annoying, to I'm finding them annoying, but I know why, why they're doing it. And I think... For me, also, there is that realisation that the field that I work in, I work in it because I like change and variety. And, and you've all talked about liking change and variety. 
which means change is going to be easier for people like us because we get a kick out of it. There's a whole load of people who really don't like it. It makes them feel uncomfortable. And that's okay. You have to accept that in any team, there'll be people who really enjoy new things and people who don't and and again if you understand more about that person you can reassure them you can do what needs to be done to help them realize you know change sadly is inevitable but there's ways that we can make it easier for people who don't have it as a motivator yeah rather than saying to them why can't you just be like Suzanne Dean, yeah, exactly. and Susan? <laughs> it's so annoying yeah. get with the program yeah. I think. <laughs> it, it makes me think about so I, I finally read Susan Cain's book Quiet so the book for introverts and and when she talks about the expectations in the workplace and how if you're not jumping in and talking in the team meeting what's up with you etc and it just it, when you were um, saying that last bit Suzanne it made me think about rather than like say making the quieter team members wrong for being quieter understand how they operate and how to work with that just like the change averse people they're not wrong they're just different than the people who love change and it, like another aspect of neurodiversity exactly and, and working with that. You can't have a whole team of people who are extroverts or a whole team of people who are introverts or a whole team of people who like change and a whole team of people who don't. It would be a nightmare about neurodiversity. I always read the quote about it was the neurodiverse who actually got us out of the caves because if we wasn't for somebody neurodiverse, we'd all still be sitting there in a cave. It was that person who's like, I wonder what's out there. And we need difference. But going back to what I said earlier, the the way that organisation processes are set up, that it's treats everybody the same and there's not enough of that making it different for different people because it takes longer and it's harder and a bit more effort and it's more destabilizing but actually if you think about it if you've got an organization of eight thousand people how on earth can you expect one single email or powerpoint presentation from the ceo to make everyone want to do something different it's just not going to work and that reminds me, I have two things to pick up on because David, you talked about quiet. That book helped me so much in my career. I remember when I read it because I used to get this feedback all the time about how I didn't speak up enough in meetings. And it used to just so annoy me because it was like, if I have something to say, I'll speak. Okay. And I remember reading that book and she says, if people don't speak up in meetings, telling them to speak up in meetings is the worst thing you can do. So I went to my boss and I said, here, read this. What you were saying there, Suzanne, I think the School of Life, who I I really like their stuff. One of the things in one of their, I can't remember which book, I think it's the Emotionally Intelligent Office. They say work would be great if everyone was like me. And I think that's what happens is the CEO of the 8,000 people goes, why can't everyone just be like me here? Off you go, just implement it. And I think that we're beginning to see, I hope, in the world that the people who get promoted into those positions are often not the people who should be in those positions. They should not be responsible for other people or they should have the right people around them that they at least listen to and let them shepherd them so that they can just be the queen or the king and not be the lord and master. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I worked on a project 
couple of years ago where there was that recognition that they'd done change before where they it was like a sheep dip is what they said and everyone just did the same same training same comms and it didn't work and they recognized that it hadn't worked so when I started talking to them they just said we need to do something different this time not that and so what we embarked upon was a program of change which was we did team by team in this organ and it was in part of the the organization at a contact center and I just went out and met with them and talked to the teams and went to team meetings and popped up here and there doing various things trying to understand where they were at and then almost doing like tailored interventions for each team and it was very time consuming but very rewarding because actually you could cover all sorts of things so you know popping up in a team meeting you could do some stuff about the change but you could also do some team building or you could answer some questions about something else so it was it was good and and actually I think they realized that worked a whole lot better now it was for a relatively small population but there's no reason why you couldn't do that in a big organization you just have to have more people out there doing it and you can also find the people inside who are those influencers that are kind of the natural influencers so to speak that people respect them and listen to them it doesn't matter where they are in the organization they're the change makers let's say and if you find them then they will help you go a very long way and often they're ignored because they're often the ones as well I think that are resisting at the beginning because they know the things that will go wrong And so they're quite vocal sometimes and they're mistaken for troublemakers instead of change makers. (laughs) I'm probably thinking about myself. (laughs) uh, No, I think that is such a huge point. Such a huge point. And if you think about it in a lot of organizations when, you know, they have good ideas about, or let's have some change champions or whatever, but they don't necessarily go about it the right way. So they ask people to volunteer. Well, that might not always be the right people. So I think it's about really identifying who those people are, who are the influencers. And and sometimes they, as you say, Susan, they might well be people who are seen as troublemakers or difficult or whatever, but actually they're respected and they are the people you should have, not the person who sticks their hand up and volunteers for everything. And people are fed up of them on this committee, that committee, you know, whatever. It's it's about choosing the right people to do it. Wow. I mean, no wonder. I, I, I still wonder sometimes how the world keeps <laughs> turning. Because the more you learn about all of this stuff, the more surprised I am that I'm even here still. Because just the world is so complex but so amazing as well and there's so much to be said for getting under the skin of things like we've done today even looking at what motivates us or exploring what demotivates us or being told what to do or not and And there's a lot of reward in that I think that's intrinsically motivating as well maybe that's the thing for me at least if people listening or watching even, wanted to think more about what, how to understand what motivates them. Where would they start maybe with some resources? We've been good the last few times thinking about resources and we've mentioned quite a lot actually already, but is there anything that either of the two of you can think of when it comes to motivation and motivation to change? You want me to go first, David? Happy to. Yeah. So, yeah, all the books, I think, that have been mentioned, there's some great books out there. I think it's spending some time thinking about 
yourself and, and about situations where you have felt really motivated or in flow and think about what that was and what can you take from that I think there's always lots of like personality questionnaires and stuff which I'm not always a big fan of but sometimes they can give you some interesting pointers into why you are different so things like insights and things like that can can give you an idea of the sorts of situations that are motivating or demotivating for you and, and sort of the baseline of your personality maybe even ask people I mean but how often do you ask other people like your family or colleagues or boss you know when have you seen me at my best when was I at my best and then get some pointers for that I think that's quite useful brilliant thanks Suzanne David yeah. So besides the the books that we mentioned, and uh, another shout out to Atomic Habits, fantastic book. Another really good book on motivating oneself is Change Anything. And I think it's by the group that used to be called Vital Smarts, and now it's Crucial Learning. And one of the things I loved about them is they talk a lot about the importance of changing our environment to support new habits. Another thought is sort of vis-a-vis our conversation about your CrossFit endeavors, like for people to deconstruct the times they feel really motivated and like, okay, what about that has been motivating and how can I translate that to other areas? And then the last is a combo is just practicing what we've talked a lot about as far as that, just bringing more curiosity versus annoyance to those pesky people who aren't getting with the program. And then lastly, when you were talking, Susan, about the complexity, oh my God, of today's world, and just the complexity of dealing with fellow humans. One of the things I've really noticed over the years is the confidence or assurance in my perspective being right goes down as my humility goes up. And realizing I don't necessarily have any clue why that person is acting that way, rather than judging them. How about like having a conversation? (laughs) How about being a little more spacious? Brilliant. I love that. (laughs) Both both of what you've said, actually, because I was going to say the personality test too, Suzanne, because I think there like there's so many of them but they can give you the language that helps you articulate and start that journey yourself into thinking and i think as well what you said david deconstructing stuff but what i found funnily enough is trying to take one thing to another doesn't always work as well so i had something that really worked for me specifically and i tried to apply that to something else and it just didn't work so i think it's For me, it's tapping into your interest. I suppose find out why do I really want to do this and just keep drilling down, you know, the five whys. So keep asking yourself until you get to it. And maybe then you're balancing the reasons for doing it against the reasons for not doing it. And if the reasons for not doing it are bigger, then forget it. So that also requires a bit of radical honesty with yourself and I think that's also a difficult thing to do and you'll be motivated to do other things differently I think that's the other thing maybe is not keep it all to if I'm motivated to brush my teeth every morning it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be motivated to ride my bike to work I bring different levels of motivation to different things I do and thinking about that at work as well I suppose in the different tasks and maybe 
you'll find that actually for one day a week you're super motivated you just haven't really thought about it and your job isn't as bad as you think it is so I think we've mentioned so many books it's more what can you do yourself that I think of that's been so much fun (laughs) again I know Sure. And I'm looking forward to reconvening next quarter for, well, who knows what we'll be talking about then. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode. If something rang through for you, be sure to let me know. Or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too. And if you enjoy helping others, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.